This morning, we're dealing with the S word. So there's really no cute jokes to start with and no funny stories. We're dealing with the S word, which is going to make a lot of you uncomfortable, and we're going to deal with a lot of difficult things. The S word, sex. And most of the time when we bring up sex, especially in the church, we find ourselves in four different positions. Some of us, when we talk about sex, we're in a position of pride. We're pretty happy that we're holding a biblical position. And so we find ourselves in a position of pride saying, man, it's about time you preached on this, Pastor. We need to get this world straightened out. So sometimes we find ourselves in a position of pride. Other times, though, when we bring up the S word, we find ourselves wallowing in guilt because of previous experience or life circumstance. And so anytime we bring up sexuality, we start to think less of ourselves because we know at different times throughout our lives, we've fallen short. And so we want to just kind of, you know, start circling the thumbs and looking down because we know we've fallen short and so we think that, well, this really isn't my area of expertise. So we can be in a position of pride, we can wallow in guilt. Some of us, though, are just simply confused. A lot of people are just wandering around going, I don't know what to believe. I think this is right, but my family tells me this. My coworkers tell me that. There's certain Christians that believe this. I just don't know. There's a lot of confusion on the matter. And then the fourth position, some of us, when we bring this up, we're ready to fight. This doesn't just bring us to a position of fear or flight. This puts us in a position of fight because we want to win. And this can fall on both sides of the aisle. Some people are ready to fight because they think we've minimized them as people or their position. Some of us are ready to fight because we believe they've minimized us and they've put us in a difficult position. So when we talk about sex, all of us fall probably into one of those four categories in some way. A position of pride a position of wallowing in guilt, a position of confusion, or I'm ready to fight. None of those positions would directly or correctly honor God. Because with each of those positions, there's, it can get out of control. It can cause a problem that gives the wrong message to the world around us about who God is. And so this morning, we're going to tackle this subject of sexuality, and hopefully God will shape us and form us and get us in a position that does reflect His image to the world around us. So we've got to start at the beginning when we talk about sex. When we talk about sex, there's three purposes for sex in the Bible. The first purpose is pretty clear in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Jesus says, let them multiply. God created male and female, let them produce and subdue the world. Very simply put, God gave us sex so that we could have children. God's desire is for humanity to continue on. God loves kids. God loves generations to keep coming after us. And so God gave us sex to produce more kids. I mean, it just doesn't get much simpler or straightforward than that. So sex is for procreation. It says in the psalm, it says, a quiverful is a blessing from the Lord. I don't know exactly what a quiverful is, if it's two, if it's eight, if it's 14. We don't know. There's not a specific number on it. But we know this, that any number of children 
are a blessing from God. And so when the family of ten or six or seven walks in, the frown shouldn't be like, jeez. You've been there, right? Oh, in the world. Right, it should be more like, that's great. That's fabulous. Because too many in our culture have chosen to have less children so they can maximize pleasure through other things. That's a reality. When in, the truth of God's word is, children are a blessing. One, two, or however many. First thing of sex is it's for procreation. But the second aspect of sex, and this is where it gets a little uncomfortable, is that sex was given to us by God for pleasure. Now I'm going to share some romantic lines that you can use in your marriage this morning. These are from the Bible. This is not Pastor Rich. I mean, I got a lot of good ones I can share with you as well. But this is the Word of God. And I share these because it shows the imagery that God is using to teach a spiritual truth, but it shows that He's comfortable just fine with this. Men, check this out. Try this one out this afternoon. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your belly is a heap of wheat. Go ahead, report back next week how that worked for you. Then he gets serious, or that was serious if we understand the culture. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. God's word is using this imagery because he knows the beauty and the pleasure of sex. That's just not just the man talk, that's not just the female, the man talking to the female, but there's also the female talking to the male. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripped with liquid myrrh. Again, this language used in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon, is pointing to a spiritual truth. But God's willingness to use this, he's using it because he knows he created the beauty and the pleasure of sex. And so he's using it to proclaim another truth. But it helps us understand that God created sex for pleasure. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, he just gets right to the point. Right to the point, a little uncomfortable even in the Bible. He says this, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Again, pretty clear from the Bible. Have sex. That's exactly what it's saying. And he's not saying have sex to have kids. He's saying have sex because it's a pleasurable thing to do. Okay? Sex was created to procreate. Sex is also a gift from God for pleasure. Third aspect of sex is that sex was created to create oneness. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to a passage in Matthew chapter 19. 
I want you to turn here because we're going to hold here for a moment. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked a question about a sensitive subject, divorce, and in his response, he gives us his understanding of marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Matthew 19, verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let let not man separate. This mysterious element that Jesus introduces, introduced in the Old Testament, is that sex brings two together and creates one new. This is where the world misses it. The world procreates and the world has pleasure, but the world misses the oneness. So sex creates a new oneness, this new one being that exists in marriage. There's this mysterious element to it. Now, look with me at a very interesting verse, Genesis chapter 4. Keep your finger there, and then turn to Genesis 4, which is the first book in the Bible. Genesis 4, verse 1. Genesis 4, verse 1. Talking about the beginning of, kind of, we're still in the beginning of creation here. Talking about humanity and the first human beings. Genesis 4, 1 says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bore Cain. Okay, let me read this again. This is just confused. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bore Cain. Last time I checked, knowing someone does not cause one to, be con- to conceive. Are we in agreement on that? Right? No, none of you just were like, whoa. I got six kids, and all I did was know someone. Well, what's going on here? There's using this word picture, is that when two come together in a sexual relation, there's something deeper going on, that you don't just know one another physically, but you actually know one another now in a whole new way. And when we understand that sex was created to bring two together to one, to create one and bring this new level of knowing one another, this new level of intimacy, we can begin to understand why sex outside of marriage causes so much damage. Because it's not just a physical act, but it's also an emotional act of giving yourself to another human being in an extremely intimate way that you don't give yourself to anyone else. And so you know each other in a unique way. There's not just a physical bond, but there's an emotional, spiritual, mental bond with one another. And so sex was created to create this oneness that two would know each other in a way that two others don't know each other. So sex is a gift from God for procreation, for pleasure, and to create a new unit of one. That's the general line purpose of sex. I mean, yeah, general line purpose of sex. And what I want you to do is turn back here to Matthew chapter 19. So Jesus is responding to this question 
about divorce, and he's giving his definition of marriage. So Jesus, in the midst of giving his definition of marriage here, basically says the two shall become one flesh, male and female. I want you to just, for one moment, just take a breath and say to yourself, Jesus' understanding was man and woman. Don't say it all just to yourself. Reflect on that. Jesus' understanding was man and woman. This was his perception. This was his understanding. This was the perspective that he was coming from. This is critical to understand, and I'll explain as we go a little bit further here. We just have to understand this. Just follow along with me. Even if you disagree on some other points, let's agree on this point, that when Jesus was living on earth, his perspective was this. Marriage was between man and a woman. So now turn with me back to where we started today, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we get this letter by the Apostle Paul, written to a group of people, and he's kind of finalizing the letter, giving them some final instructions. And he takes a portion of these final instructions to really focus in on one area. And what's the area that he chooses to focus in on? Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So he's saying, hey, I want to focus specifically here for a moment that I want to encourage you and remind you that there's one specific area that I want to elevate, that I want to lift up and specifically remind you about, and that's the area of sexuality. I want to remind you that you've got a specific responsibility here. Because he could have reminded them about who knows how, dozens of different things. There's bundles of different issues. But he specifically elevates this up. I want you to see this. Because when people criticize the church and say, well, you're always talking about sexuality. No, 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 no. Notice right here. I didn't elevate it. The Apostle Paul elevated it. He lifts it up and says this specific item we need to address. And it's of importance. Now, I want you to notice one other thing he says here. Look back at verse 1 and verse 2. He says, we ask and urge you, what? In the Lord Jesus. Now, look down at verse 2. What the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This connection is critical. Because when we start talking about sexuality, here's what people try to do. They try to separate Jesus from the rest of the Bible. This happens all of the time. You read any academic book about the issue of sexuality, and they'll give you the point. Yes, the Apostle Paul says this about sexuality, but then they always go back to this point. But Jesus was silent on it. You can't separate Jesus from the rest of the Bible. When you separate Jesus from the rest of the Bible, you've lost Jesus. And now you're following a self-made Jesus. Because what message is the Apostle Paul bringing to these people? the message he got from Jesus. He says to them, hey, I'm reminding you about what? The message you received from who? Not me, but from Jesus. And so it goes back to Jesus. And so now we get to the point of saying, okay, if it's about what Jesus taught and commanded, and he's saying, do not commit sexual immorality, and Jesus defined marriage as between a man and a woman, what would sexual immorality be according to Jesus? any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between man and a woman. So in Jesus' day, 
if you would have come up to Jesus, he said, Jesus defines sexual immorality. He does this in the Sermon on the Mount, called adultery. What is adultery? Anything outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And so it's not Jesus against the rest of the Bible. Paul's working from the basis of Jesus. So sexual immorality is very simply put, any sexual activity outside the confines of a covenant between a man and a woman. Any sexual activity outside the covenant between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul here is saying, hey, you got to watch yourself. He says here, you know what? If you want to please God, that's what he says. If you want to please God, you want to honor God, he says what? Abstain from sexual immorality. Control your own body in holiness and honor. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying this. You've been set apart for the purpose of God. That's what it means to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart for the purpose of God. So when he says, hey, be holy, he's saying, hey, follow the purposes of God rather than your own desires or your own purposes. Holiness is not being true to yourself. Holiness is not being true to yourself. Holiness is being true to Jesus Christ, who's set apart on our behalf. And so sexual immorality is any time we act outside of that standard which God has set because we've been set apart for that standard. Now, anytime we talk about sexuality, it gets really uncomfortable. Anytime you talk about sexual immorality, it gets really, really uncomfortable. We're not very good at this, right? Partly because it's gotten really emotional. And rightfully so, because it involves people. Anytime we talk about sexuality, we're talking about people. Because sexuality is not an issue without people. Anytime you have sex, you have people. So it is a very sensitive subject. It's become more sensitive and emotional because of the media, because of the culture and everything going on around us. Expectations placed on the church by people outside the church, and then expectations placed on the church by people within the church. All the emotions are rising to the top. And in the midst of that, what we normally do is we just normally start to yell. That's not just me, right, that acts this way when things get a little heated, right? Voices raise, and sometimes logic goes down to the bottom. So when we talk about sexual immorality in the church, one thing that happens is this. Voices raise, and the focus really narrows into one specific thing, and that specific thing is homosexuality. It's the number one thing when the church talks about sexual immorality that the church talks about is homosexuality. Now, let me be very clear about this. Have, has we been clear this morning from Jesus that anything out the confines of a man and woman in a covenant is sexual immorality? Yes. Therefore, homosexual behavior is in opposition to the design and the desire of God. There's no discussion, there's no negotiation about it. Jesus is perfectly clear. But that's not the only thing that's sexual immorality. We've got two other major issues that are on all of our lives. Not just outside the church, but inside the church with all of us. There's three major sexual immorality issues in our culture. Homosexuality, at the same exact time, just there as much as heterosexual activity outside of marriage. 
Okay? There, there's, no, there's no list of sexual immorality of one being worse than the other. Just like in sin, all sin is equal. Sexual activity, even heterosexual activity outside of the confines of marriage, is sexual immorality. It's a major issue. On our college campuses, it's basically become a business. For our media, it's basically become what's glamorized to sell. And it's just as bad. So if we're going to speak out, and there's times when we should speak out, we've got to be consistent on what we're speaking out about. Homosexual behavior, heterosexual activity outside of marriage. But there's a third element that touches right the home base for all of us. That's the issue of pornography. Yesterday, a couple of us guys were listening to a national speaker that had come to Sioux Falls to talk to us about men's ministry. And some of the stats that he shared are overwhelming of what's happening in our homes, what's happening in the world around us. Pornography is a challenge. And we don't even want to talk about it because it's awkward. Here's the problem with pornography. Pornography is an addictive drug that does not meet a desire. If pornography met a desire, people wouldn't get addicted to it and have to keep going back time and time again repeatedly. But it's an addictive drug that's not even meant to meet a desire. It's meant to draw you in, to sustain you, and keep you there continually. It's present in our lives. We've got to be willing to open up and acknowledge it and say, hey, this has been a problem. And confess it to someone and put things in place that help us take that next step. So we've got challenges in our communities. We've got challenges in our homes. That God has said, hey, I've given you this gift. But so often we've trampled on the gift. And we've got a variety of ways in which we're trampling on it. Now, sexual immorality is a serious, serious issue. So what do we do? Let's just talk for a moment. What are some real answers? So what do we do? Because this is a challenge we all face to help all of us thrive in regards to sexuality. Right? The purpose here is to what? You and I not to be right. My goal for you is not to leave this morning and sign a document that says, I believe the right thing about sexuality. God's word is not for you to be right about something. God's word's goal for you is what? To be holy. To be a representative of God in the image of Jesus Christ. So what can we do? The first thing we can do this is men and women. There's different things that each of us have to do. Men, we have to help women be women. Women, we have to help men be men. So often we're using sex as an outlet because we're not fulfilled in who we are as a man or a woman. And so men, now, a lot of Sundays you might think, man, I'm listening to an expert today. Okay, I, hopefully you know by now, right? Hopefully you know by now that I'm not an expert on Sunday mornings on anything we talk about. All I'm doing is opening God's Word. Today I'm just putting that on steroids. I'm not an expert. So what I'm about to share, I'm not saying this, follow my example. Because I'll openly acknowledge, I'm horrible at this. Men, what we have to do is this. We have to do a better job of romanticizing our women. We have, romanticizing is the exact right word. But we have to be a better job of being romantic. Of giving them security in the way in which we care and love for them. Now, I'm horrible at this. 
Maybe once every seven years I've been able to be romantic. Last night, though, for example, I was really romantic. My wife and I went out for supper with a couple, or went to my friend's house for supper. And my friend and I talked in advance and said, hey, you know what? We should do something really nice for our wives tonight. And so we said, let's let our wives win the game tonight. (laughs) Because that'll help them feel secure. And that's hard for a man to do, right? You want to win. So last night I fell on the sword and lost. No, I didn't do that thing. They, They won. What should have actually happened is this. Men love what? Authority and power. So the women actually should have let the men win. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, men, listen very closely. We have to do a better job of cherishing the women that God has placed into our lives so that our daughters and our granddaughters see the appropriate way to be cherished. Myself included. Sex doesn't start in the bedroom. I've read that I don't know how many times. I've in different books and different articles. Men, sex does not begin in the bedroom. Sex begins in the morning with taking out the garbage, making the coffee, filling the car up with gas. Whatever it is, that little thing you can do to serve and to bless, to show that the other person is treasured and wanted. Men, we need to learn how to be romantic. Women, if we want to flourish in sexuality, women, we've got to start letting, not we, women. (laughs) Women, it's time to let men be men. So women, here's what you have to do. And this is controversial. This is not culturally appropriate. I recognize this. Women, what you've, you've got to do is you've got to give the men in your life a little power, a little freedom to make decisions, own the decisions, And have authority in it. This is what men were created to be. Men were created to create and to own and to run. I'm not talking in a demonstrative way at all. But women, you need to say to the men in your life, hey, make this decision. Make this decision. And then what you need to do after they make this decision, you need to support them in that decision, not second-guess them in that decision. Obviously, if it's outside the confines of God's word, you have to say, honey, can we talk about this? But if it's not within the confines of God's word, women need to say, hey, make this decision for us and own it. It's your responsibility. And then when they make the decision, guess what? Love it. Live with it. Enjoy it. Because men need to start taking responsibility, owning stuff. We've created a culture of passivity. We've got men who are 50, 65, 35-year-olds that are spending more time playing video games than they are pouring into eternal things that will matter for eternity. We've got men that are spending 16 hours a week on the golf course rather than owning projects and initiatives that can change the next generation. And a lot of it's because the women take the lead. And let the men off the hook. Women, you got to say, hey, make this decision. Put it in front of them and make them own it. Because when we do this, when we allow women to flourish as women, men to flourish as men, guess what? We can flourish in our sexuality. Because when women are secure, they're not going to have to use sex to get their security. You follow that? 
When women are insecure, sex can be the instrument to bring them security from another being. When men do not have purpose in life, when men are not thriving and flourishing with energy, guess what they do? They try to fulfill those natural desires through little short snippets. But when men find their purpose and women find their security, both flourish and sexuality can flourish as well. If we are going to be holy, be all that God created us to be, it begins by finding our purpose as a man and as a woman. So what's a very practical thing that you can do in regards to sexuality? I want to share this this morning, and not in the sense of making anyone feel bad, but it's a very practical thing. If you're struggling in the area of sexuality, the number one thing is this. What are you feeding your mind? What are you glamorizing? Sometimes you've got to take extreme intentional steps to meditate your mind on something else besides sexuality. This is a real challenge for us. Because everything on TV, what? has got a certain element in it that glamorizes it. I'm not one of those guys like, oh, go home and turn off your cable. It's not my point. My point is be very careful. There's a big difference between watching a TV show where they show the reality of life with sexuality and watching a TV show that uses sexuality to grab you and to glorify it in an immoral way. That affects our thinking. That affects our feelings. That affects our actions. So what are we putting into our minds? What are we meditating upon? God has given us this great gift, the gift of sex. But we've trampled on it. Because so often what we've put in our minds and our hearts is the exact opposite of what God created it to be. Sex is not easy to talk about. Sex is personal because it involves people that we love and we care about. And any time we talk about sex, we have to remember the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he walked on earth, was criticized multiple times. We heard it this morning in Luke chapter 7. Jesus was criticized for what? Spending time with these sinners. Specifically, prostitutes and women who were not welcomed in the rest of the community. But be very careful in how you understand this. Jesus loving and accepting people was not Jesus going to a party on Friday night and enjoying a drag with everyone else. But that's the way we make it sound like, oh, hey, Jesus hung out with everybody. Be careful how you use the term hung out. Jesus attracted everyone, literally, because his message was one of forgiveness and reconciliation. His healing was not dependent upon who you were or where you came from, but his healing was dependent upon his love for you. And so we have to remember that Jesus calls us to love people. And at the exact same time we're loving people, guess what? Jesus calls us to live out his desires. And there's going to be a tension, a constant tension. It's going to be messy because sometimes when you're loving someone, they feel that as approval. But you're in this thing, you're trying to love them, but you're also trying to live according to Jesus' desires, and there's not always clarity. So it's going to be messy. 
But finally, when Jesus spends time with people, what happens, the final word is always one of forgiveness. We saw it in Luke chapter 7. We see it with Jesus at the woman at the well, and we see it with Jesus with the woman who the people bring to him and they want to stone her. The final word is always one of forgiveness, where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now here's the thing about forgiveness from God. If you're going to remember anything today, remember this. When God forgives, He forgets. When God forgives, He forgets. As far as the east is from the west, our transgressions have been removed. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 15 tells us that God forgives us and He remembers their wickedness no more. So when God looks at you, God does not see Franklin the divorcee. God sees Franklin, the child of God. God has forgotten the past. God has forgiven the past. God is concerned now with where you're going. So the question for us today is this. Am I going in the direction of God's overarching standard? Am I pursuing holiness? In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, hey, I'm here to remind you just more and more to continue to walk. It's critical he does not assume they've arrived. He assumes that what? It's a process. It's a journey. If you haven't arrived, and none of us have arrived yet, the question is, what direction am I going? And the direction that Jesus sets you in is one of forgiveness. Jesus says to you today, your sins are forgiven through faith in him. Jesus sees you as new. He sees you as perfect through Jesus Christ. And so today, are you orientated in the direction of God? Is that the direction that you are going? As we think about this issue of sexuality, I want to ask you three questions this morning. Three questions. The first is this. Are you glorifying sexual immorality in any form? Are you glorifying sexual immorality in any form? Either by enjoying it, participating in it, or being passive about it. Are you glorifying sexual immorality in any form? Second question that God's Word would have for us today. Are you walking towards God's holy purposes? Are you walking towards God's holy purposes? Are you saying, you know what? I'm going to make this right. Not for the sake of being forgiven. That's not how forgiveness works. I'm going to make this right because God has made me right. Are you walking towards God's holy purposes? And then thirdly, are you loving like Jesus? Loving like Jesus means it's going to be messy. There's going to be confusion. Loving like Jesus means some are not going to like you. Some are not going to approve of you. But loving like Jesus means you stay with them, even when they don't like and approve of you. Because if we're being holy, we can't just pursue sexual purity. But if we're being holy, we also have to pursue to love like Jesus. Holiness does not cause one to be loud and obnoxious. Holiness 
does not cause one to be prideful and contemptful towards someone else. Holiness creates sexual purity while at the exact same time creating a loving heart for other people. And so today, where are you at? Are you glorifying sexual immorality in any form? Are you pursuing God's standard? Are you orientated towards God's standard? And then thirdly, are you loving like Jesus? Let us pray. Creator God, we recognize this is tough stuff, and God, we recognize there's dynamics in our relationships, dynamics in our lives. And so we ask for a season of patience and understanding with one another as we wrestle, as we seek to understand your truth and your word. Today we specifically ask, God, that you would shape and form our hearts to pursue holiness. We pray that, God, you'd give us a distaste. Lord, physically, give each of us a distaste for sexual immorality. Not for people, but, God, give us a distaste for sexual immorality. And, God, finally, shape our hearts and form our lives to love like Jesus. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your promises. Help us now, O oh Lord, to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.